Good morning. My, uh, my niece and I were playing a game together somewhat recently, and it was one of those games where you have these annoyingly intricate pieces, that, and, and you have to fit each piece in the exact space that it's designed for. And so it requires all kinds of twisting and turning and returning of the object in order to try to get it fit flush into the space that it's designed to fit in. And so we have all these pieces on the floor, and she takes half and I take half, and, and we go at it, twisting and returning and reshaping and remolding and trying to get them to fit. And eventually, we get to the point where I've finished all of my pieces. And I look over and I see pretty clearly that she hasn't fit a single one of her pieces in its design spot. And so she sees that I'm already done, and, and she picks up one of the pieces and hurriedly just tries to uh, maneuver it and finagle it in a way that fits. It doesn't fit, it falls to the ground, and she just looks at me with this exasperated look and says, Uncle Charlie, a little help here, please. A little help here, please. I think it happens to all of us at some point or another. We, we all find ourselves watching someone else do something that we'd really like to be able to do, and after not being able to figure it out on our own, we looked at the other person, we kind of flag them down, and we're like, a little help over here, please. Could you teach me how to do this? Because I can't figure it out on my own. We'll enter Jesus' disciples in Luke chapter 11. They're having one of those a little help here, please, type of moments. You see, Jesus' disciples, they're watching Jesus pray. Right over there across the hillside, they're watching Jesus pray. And they'd love to be able to do that too. They'd love to be able to do that too, but frankly, they have no clue where to start. No clue where to start. When it comes to talking to God, I don't know if you can relate. I, I mean, I can Sometimes I barely know where to start when it comes to like talking to my own friends and family, let alone when it comes to talking to God. I mean, what do we say? What do we not say? How do we say it? How do we not say it? When do we say it? Sometimes we just don't even know where to start. So one of the disciples who's feeling the exact same way musters up the courage and makes his way over to Jesus at the end of Jesus praying. And he looks at them, and he, and he, in effect, says, Jesus, a little help here, please. And in verse 1 of Luke 11, the disciple looks at Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. One of the most fascinating parts of Jesus' ministry to me is if you, if, you, if you follow his ministry here on earth throughout the Gospels, and the different narrative accounts, you watch that, that tons of people come to him with different requests and different questions, and he almost never gives a direct answer. I, I mean, people are coming to him all the time with different requests or questions, and all the time he's answering them by either talking in a parable, or he'll just redirect the question altogether, or he'll just start talking about something seemingly completely unrelated, as though it's like, well, this is what I wanted to talk about. He almost never gives a direct answer. And so it strikes me then, in this particular passage, that he gives a very direct answer. This is one of those requests when, 
when the disciples come to us and say, Lord, teach us how to pray, Jesus gives a very direct answer. And then not only does he give a direct answer, but he begins to expand on that answer. He gives even more explanation as to that answer, almost in a way that gives us an incredible amount of insight into the nature and regarding the nature of prayer. And his answer, as we'll see, it, it gives us insight into a number of things about prayer. But the first and foremost thing that he does is it gives us insight into just his instruction about how we should pray. First and foremost, Jesus says, here's how you pray. And he, and he starts this in verse 2 of Luke 11, where he says this. He says, Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. These are his literal instructions. The disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, say this. It's worth noting that at that current, in the current religious context of that time, that the disciples would have absolutely been looking for the exact words. They would have been looking for the prayer formula. That, that's, that's how talking to God would have seemed to them. So they, they would have been looking, Jesus, tell us exactly the words that we're supposed to say, and we'll say them over and over and over again. And so he does do that. Jesus does give them the exact words that they can then go ahead and say. But it also strikes me that Jesus is the greatest teacher of all time. And I don't know if you can think back to any of your teachers and what they were really good at, but I always think of a good teacher being someone who might actually give you the answer, but underneath that answer, underneath that answer, what they're trying to do is they're trying to give you some values and principles that will actually equip you to be able to live out whatever that answer is in whatever context you find yourself for the rest of your life. And so yes, Jesus gave the disciples these exact words how to pray. But I also think under that He's giving us a couple values and principles that he would hope would guide the things that permeate our prayer life. That in the midst of the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he's attempting to give them some instruction about here's what I would hope you're praying for. And here are four things, I think, that stick out when Jesus is giving this specific instruction about how to pray. The first thing is, is he's telling them to pray for God's reign, that God's kingdom would come. And in our translation, it says, your kingdom come, in the English translation that we have today. One of, if we were trying to do the most literal word-for-word -word translation that you could possibly find of that original Greek text, it might say something like, come on, kingdom, like get here now, right now. That, that's, that's what it means when we're praying for God's kingdom to come. That's his instruction. He wants us to pray that God's kingdom to come. And so when we pray that his kingdom is to come, we're praying for this eventual day when all will be made well again, when every tear will be wiped away, when all injustices will be made just again, when the earth will be restored and renewed to what it was originally meant to be. We're praying for that eventual day. But what we're also praying for and asking for God's kingdom to come is that we get the opportunity to see God's kingdom right here and right now. 
Pastor Tish Harrison Warren observes this when she's thinking about what it looks like to pray for God's kingdom to come. She says this. She says, So we wait and watch for the coming kingdom when God will finally set things right. But, but we also wait and watch for glimpses of that kingdom right here and right now. You see, when God instructs us to pray for his coming kingdom, we're praying for this eventual day when his kingdom will come, and we're also praying that we'll get glimpses of his kingdom right here and right now. This is one of the things he instructs us to pray for. What else does he have to say in his prayer instructions? Well, he, he asks us to pray for our daily bread. A literal translation of that might be the, that we would pray for tomorrow's bread in today's prayers. You see, Jesus' instruction is for us to pray in a way that transforms our hearts so that we'd be even more reliant on God than we already are. That we'd rely on him for all of our provision, all of the sustenance that comes in our lives. I, I don't know about you, this is at least my observation, at least of myself. We're pretty darn good at tricking ourselves into thinking that we're the providers around here. I mean, everything that I have, everything that my kids have, everything that my grandkids have is really a result of me. I did that. And I don't think Jesus is attempting to discredit the, the hard work and the, the real effort that goes in to being able to, to have a life here. But what he is doing is he's asking us to pray in a way that completely reorients how we think about who's doing the providing. He's asking us to pray in a way that thinks of who God is, the provider, and who we are, the ones who receive that provision. And so this is how he instructs us to pray, that we would ask for our daily bread, that we would ask God that he would transform us to be even more reliant on him. And then there's the forgiveness of our sins and the debts that we owe. Jesus asks us to pray for this, too. Back in that culture at that time, there would have been this sense of I-O-U mentality that would have permeated everything that would have existed at the time. So everything was an I-O-U. You did someone a favor, and they automatically owed you something. Someone did you a favor, you owed them something. So, so anytime you did something for anybody, which is virtually all the time in life, you immediately entered into this re relationship where, where it would go in this cycle. Debt, repayment, debt, repayment, debt, repayment. If you lived at that time, somebody always owed you something, and for sure, probably somebody, you owed somebody something as well. This concept of an IOU, it existed everywhere. And then Jesus asks us to pray for this. He asks us to pray for forgiveness with no debt repayment. His instructions are that we would pray asking God for forgiveness for our sins and our debts and that we would pray asking God that he would transform us in a way that allows us to forgive others in a radical way. And finally, the last thing that Jesus instructs us to pray for 
is for protection from temptation. And I want a quick caveat here. What he's not asking us to pray for and what it would have been obvious to the disciples that he was not asking them to pray for is that no temptation or no difficulty or no opposition or no struggle would ever come to them. They, they would have known, it would have been clear, it didn't need saying in the text that, that this was a reality of following Jesus, that you're gonna run into struggles, you're gonna run into temptations, you're gonna run into opposition. So it would have been clear, of course not, we're not talking about that. So then what does he mean when he says, we would pray that we would not be led into temptation? Well, Jesus is asking us to pray for God's protection and care. His protection and care so that the, when the weight of the world does come, when the weight of those struggles and the temptation and the opposition does come, that it would not flatten us and crush us completely. That there would always be a sufficient amount of grace that we would receive. There would always be enough relationships that he surrounds us with so that there is a light at the end of the tunnel so that we can see this hope that eventually comes to us. That's what we're asking God to pray for. Or that's what Jesus is asking us to pray for in this way. For protection and care. So this is what Jesus instructs us to pray for. These four things. That God's reign would come, his kingdom would come. That we'd get tomorrow's bread today. That we, he would forgive us our debts. And that we'd have protection for temptation. Do you pray for those things? Pastor Duke Kwan, who's a, a speaker and writer and church pastor, observes our need, especially in light of the world today, to make some of those things a primary part of the way that we pray. When he says this, he says, in previous generations, the discipling of young Christians included, among other things, the exposition and the application of the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And he says, if churches started doing this alone, it would transform an entire generation of Christians. So this is Jesus' direct answer to the question. The disciples ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, here's how you pray. Here are the things I'd like you to pray for. But I think the most fascinating part of this passage, the most intriguing part to me, is that he doesn't stop there. I mean, this is the, he just answered their question. He answered it very directly. But he has no intention of stopping there. No, instead he continues on. He doesn't just say, here's how you pray. He also starts to give context and an illustration for here's why you pray, and here's when this prayer might become especially, especially applicable to you. And so he finishes his instructions on prayer, and then he jumps right into this hypothetical scenario. A hypothetical scenario that he would expect to land and to be incredibly applicable to the disciples then and to us today. Here's the hypothetical that he gives. He says this. He says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food for him. And Jesus then says, and suppose the person inside answers and says, don't bother me. The door's already locked. 
You know, my children and I were already in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. And Jesus concludes, he says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So there's this friend at midnight in desperate need of help. In desperate need of help. Jesus is using this illustration to say, here's exactly when you pray. You want to know the when and the why regarding the context of when this prayer would make sense to pray? It's when you're desperate at midnight. When you feel like the walls are caving in around you, when you feel like there's nowhere else to turn, when you feel like you're on a brink, Jesus says, here's when you pray. And so Jesus says, and he wants to make extremely clear, this prayer, it's not something that's just this constantly repeated, irrelevant prayer. No, Jesus is saying, this prayer It's an extremely applicable prayer for urgent situations. If you're desperate, this is the prayer for you, Jesus is saying. So this prayer, it's for the parents whose kid is just struggling mightily. This prayer, it's a prayer for the addict who just can't get clean. This prayer... It's a prayer for the family who's watching their loved one get sicker and sicker by the day. It's a prayer for the perfectionist when nothing is going according to plan. It's a prayer for the people pleaser when everything seems to be full of conflict. Jesus says, this is a prayer for you and for me when we're on the brink. I know for certain that there are folks in this room and folks online today who are feeling exactly that. Who are feeling the weight of one of these midnight type situations. That it feels like you're on the brink. And Jesus is clearly saying, This prayer, this prayer that I'm teaching you, it's for you. It's for you. And I also know that there are folks in this room and online who it doesn't feel like our current situation is like that. You can't find yourself immediately in one of those midnight type situations. And so the question becomes then, well, is this prayer for me? So am I supposed to not pray this prayer? I guess I'd love to give a categorical answer to that. Absolutely, this is for you. Jesus is instructing you to pray this as well. You see, because one of the differences between the biblical world and today's modern Western world is the world that Jesus was speaking into, incredibly communal. Everything that someone heard, they would have heard it in the context of community. Well, today's modern Western world, incredibly individualistic. Everything you hear, everything you think, our immediate question, whether we know it or not, is how does that apply to me? How does that affect me? What's that got to do with me? 
And so when Jesus gave this hypothetical scenario, I mean, certainly his listeners at that time, they would have heard it and they thought, gosh, am I in one of those midnight scenarios? Does that apply to me at all? But they no chance they would have stopped there. There is no chance that would have been the end of their digesting of this scenario. No, they would have recognized, gosh, this is a prayer for us. This is a prayer for this community. This is a prayer to be prayed over others. This is a prayer to be prayed for our local community and our global community. This is a prayer to be prayed for our world. So we all have something in this prayer. And a prayer to be prayed for our world because if we're honest and a little bit of a candid thought right now about our world, it's it feels like we're collectively in one of those midnight-type situations. I mean, war, poverty, injustice, mental health, you name it. It seems like we are spiraling. And we seem like we're collectively in one of these midnight-type situations. One of my new favorite quotes is a quote by a guy named Andy Crouch. Andy is a former editor at Christianity Today, and he's now an author and a public speaker. And he was speaking to a group of students recently, and he said this about the state of our world. He said, the statistics tell us you are experiencing, you the students, are experiencing an extraordinary level of anxiety, depression, and loneliness. And I love this part. He says, that is not because you are unhealthy people in a normal world. No, it's because you're normal people in an unhealthy world. I know there are some exceptions, but I kind of agree with him. We live in an unhealthy world. This is an unhealthy world. It's a world that collectively feels like it's in one of those midnight scenarios. And so Jesus, as he's teaching about prayer, he shares with us the when and the why to pray. And he says, pray when you feel like you're in one of those midnight type situations. Well, as a community, it kind of feels like that which I'd imagine inclines us all the more to have this prayer, these things at the forefront of our mind. Even after sharing this, Jesus isn't done teaching on prayer. I mean, he's showed us a little bit about the instruction about how we're supposed to pray, and then he's given us context about when and why this prayer becomes especially relevant but he's not done yet because he's imagining that circling through the thoughts and minds of his listeners is a singular question. Maybe you've asked it. Is God going to answer my prayer? I mean, is he listening? And is he going to answer? And so Jesus not only gives us instruction about how to pray, and he not only gives us context about when and why this prayer becomes especially applicable, but then he goes on and he gives us hope about how God answers prayer. And he does this 
starting in verse 9. He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And he says, which of you parents, if your child asks for a fish, would you give them a snake instead? Or if your child asks for an egg, would you give them a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, if you then, though you're broken and sinful, if even you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says. God is absolutely crazy about you. He's right there, sitting in the wings, waiting to hear from you. He loves you more than the entire world could possibly imagine, and there's no chance that he's ever going to change his mind about that. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here in this passage. He's saying, think about the person in this world that loves you the most. Wouldn't they, if you came to them in need, wouldn't they absolutely respond to you? giving you exactly what was good for you, giving you everything that you needed. Wouldn't they do that? He's asking. Well, then if they would do that, and they're just humans, imagine how much more the God of the universe, who loves you more than any human capacity could ever imagine, imagine how much more the God of the universe is going to do that when you come asking to him. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate here about the hope for God to answer our prayers. But I gotta be honest, the last part of this passage I get a huge kick out of. Because I can just imagine. I can imagine a group of contemporary Christians, myself included, we're all huddled around Jesus. We're all standing around Jesus, listening to him teach on prayer. And he starts talking about how good God is and about how he's a giver of good gifts to those who need them. And our eyes start to light up. We start to think, oh, thank goodness. All the blessings that I've been praying for or that I'm about to pray for, I may pray for in the future, he's going to start giving them to me. And then Jesus comes up with this line, and he says, if you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father in heaven give? And his voice starts to trail off, and you're ready to finish his sentence. You're thinking, here's what he's going to give me. If he's really a good father, here's what he's going to give me. How much more will your Father in heaven, you can already hear him saying it out loud, give you better health. Give you respectful children. Give you a husband give you the winning lottery ticket, give you new kitchen cabinets, give you just some rest. I don't know what your fill-in-the-blank thing is, but I think we all got them. Those things that we think, you know, if God was really good and he was really listening, and Jesus, if you're telling me the truth about how he gives good gifts, then here's what he's going to give me. 
And then Jesus finishes his sentence. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the gift. Jesus is building up this entire teaching on prayer all to show us that the gift that God gives the best father who looks out for our every need, what he does as the giver of good things in response to our prayer is to give us the Holy Spirit. God himself, active and alive within us, dwelling among us, moving as an active change agent through and among us in the midst of the world. That is how God answers prayer, Jesus says, by giving you himself. That's the answer. And Jesus says he's absolutely willing to give that to you if you just seek, ask, and knock. So this whole prayer thing, this whole talking to God thing? Where do we even start? Well, Jesus says, if you feel like you're on the edge of midnight, pray this prayer. And God, who is a good God, will give you himself as the answer. And if you don't know where to start, Jesus says, just say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Forgive us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen.